to teach your kids about economics. What you don't know about retirement could hurt you. And do you think Anthony Weiner uses Snapchat? This is Your Money, Your Wealth. Today on Your Money, Your Wealth, Joe and Big Al chat about economics with Michelle Balcone, co-author of the children's book, Let's Chat About Economics. Plus, the fellas debunk retirement myths, and Joe quizzes Big Al on the eight things most Americans don't know about retirement. The fellas also answer emails on Roth IRAs, 401ks, and investing. Now, here are two guys who wouldn't know Snapchat if it snapped them right in the IPO. Joe Anderson, CFP, and Big Al Clopine, CPA. Alan, I got some big news for you right now. You do? This could be my last show. So you mean I get to take over? Yes. I got this email. Right. And I want to share it with you. Okay. And I I want your advice on this. Okay. So it says, dear friend, I won't say her name, but she is one of the wives of the late president of the Democratic Republic of Congo. Congo. Okay. Consequently, upon the assassination of my husband... I am in possession of $58 million. <laughs> These funds are being earmarked for special projects. Yes. This fund has since been deposited in a security company in West African country of Togo, where I'm residing now with my children. It is now my intention to move the said fund out of this place, Togo, to a safer place for the benefit of the children and I for immediate investment. Okay. Based on this, I am asking for your assistance to enable me to take this money out of Togo. However, note that my children and I have agreed to give you 20% of the total fund if you can accept the offering of assisting us. Wow. So you could retire on that, huh? 20% of 58 uh, million. 58 million? Also, it will be my responsibility in directing us on a viable business. All right. So I got some responsibilities for this newfound fortune. You got to do something. Now, do you have to marry her? Wait for it. (laughs) It is also my intention to relocate and probably take temporary residence in the country pending when all the troubles in my country will be resolved. Okay. We advise that you look for a house we will buy as soon as we arrive. To conclude this transaction, you will be required to come to Togo. To open an account in the bank here in Togo, where the security company will deposit the total sum in your favor. From this bank, the money will be remitted into your original bank account in your country. Immediately this is done, all of us will depart Togo to your country, where my children and I expect to take temporary residence. Got it. Okay. Boom. Look at that. Found a wife. That's, Kids, it's eighteen, nineteen million, just right. just like that. Please note that I cannot open up a bank account uh, in my name because my late husband's first son Joseph, who took over power of our country, don't want to see me or my children. He claimed that when our husband was alive, that I was very close to him than any other wives, including his mother. He also claimed that because of my closeness to him, I was able to get things from him more than others. As a result, he has been monitoring me. In fact, this one this is one of the main reasons I want my children out of our country uh, and to live with you. <laughs> wow. So That's quite an elaborate email. There's a little, there's a little baggage, you I guess, that goes along with this. A little bit, uh, but, you know, for all that money... Well, I just you're, you're so you're retiring. I am from the profession. <laughs> I am. I am done. And let's see, you and uh, fifty million other people got that email. I don't know. I don't think so, Alan. You don't think so? You think <laughs> it was written right to you. I think it was, so. It said, "Dear friend," not J- "Dear Joe." It says, "Dear I love, friend." I love your podcast. <laughs> yes, dear friend. <laughs> 
Uh, dear? I, I usually get ones from uh, somebody in England that has $12 million to deposit. <laughs> well, see, $12 million. I had $58 million. That's a much better see, deal. They went straight to the source. And I don't think I got an offer to get 20 25%, but you never know. Yeah, so but I have to travel there. You do. Get them out of harm's way. Well, you've got plenty of vacation. I do. I have a couple. I have a a couple days banked up. Yeah, a couple years, I think. Uh, So, yeah, I just wanted to say goodbye (laughs) (laughs) to my newfound future. With so, if you are one of the other fifty million people that got this email, too too late. I've already booked uh, my flight. Yeah, Joe's already taken it. (laughs) However, I will also say. Clearly, what they're trying to do is get your bank account info so they can take money from your account. So be careful. Oh, really? Yes. Mm. I, I, I know I spoiled it for you. So when I go over there, you don't think they're, no. <laughs> they're not going to open with open arms? In, in Red carpet? Country of Tonga. <laughs> Toga? Toga. T-O-G-O? Yeah. I know Togo's. It's good yeah. sandwiches. It's, it's, yeah. it's all I know about Togo's. It's, right. It's probably similar. Uh. <laughs> Yes, it's <laughs> great sandwiches. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? There's a lot of scams out there. You got to be very careful. You do. You know, with filing your tax returns, and um, I mean, like as, fi- as financial advisors as Al and I are, um, we tend to get, I don't know, what, half a dozen of these? It seems like a mm-hmm. week. Yeah, you just, and, and uh, I, I like it where they say, dear friend, or, or they say something like, through extensive research, through, <laughs> through you know, the web research, we have found you. Oh. So, but they don't call you by name. Yes, of course. Yeah, <laughs> they didn't. Yeah, they have our crack research team. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're utilizing our crack research team. Oh, right. Yes. So anyway, fifty-eight million bucks. That sounds pretty attractive. Twenty well, percent of that. It does. It's twenty. And I did my math wrong. Twenty percent. Twenty percent. Twenty percent. So that's uh, that's about eleven million. I said seventeen, but still, that's a good that's a good figure. Eleven, twelve million. Well, if I look at if it was sixty million, twenty yeah. percent of sixty million is twenty million. Sixty. Or twelve million. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, twelve million. Yeah. See, I had said eighteen. I was. I don't know what I was thinking, but anyway, yeah, it's it's close to twelve. Yeah. Still, so good... she knows we're pretty good with math. Yeah. <laughs> that's why she she's going to give me eight bucks. Expensive like, research. Yeah, that's, that's about twenty percent of fifty-eight million. <laughs> we're thinking eight bucks. Wow, this is great. <laughs> oh my. Buy me a cup of coffee and lunch. Oh my God! This is a financial planning show, and Alan and I are a little rusty on the numbers here. We don't have a calculator. Numbers. Yeah, just well. Last weekend, though. Last weekend. Last weekend, of mom. Yeah, yeah. Ruthie's going back to Minnesota. Oh, okay, that's. It's been bad. two months. Yeah, a couple it's months. Well, two this and is, a half. This is her winter home. <sighs> yeah, you do know that. Yes, I know. You bought a large home in anticipation of this. Does yeah. she? She live on a different floor. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I put her in the basement. <laughs> <laughs> or a little tent in the backyard. No, she's got a nice little master suite on yeah. the first floor, you know, yeah, yeah. so she doesn't have to walk up the stairs. Okay. Yeah. Right. So you, and you got your own second floor? Yeah. You even, you kind of even almost have a third floor, right? Yeah. I guess a, you have the deck. The deck, patio outside. Yeah, patio. Yeah. So. And if you had a basement, you'd have four. Huh? Yeah, yeah well, I could dig one. Yeah, you could. I suppose. <laughs> oh, boy. You know, I got an interesting question um, from a listener, and we were talking about Social Security, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago. Right. And um, was confused on the spousal benefit, all right? And so she w- heard that she could collect on an ex-spouse and didn't necessarily believe us. Right. And so the rules on this, Alan, 
is that if you were married to someone for over 10 years, right, or 40 quarters, right, 10 years of marriage, yes, right. um, and you haven't remarried, you can still claim on your ex-spouse's spousal benefit. And if you have more than one ex-spouse for 10 years, you can take the better of the two. The better of the two. Or the three, whatever. Right, yeah. So, yeah, Rob uh, Rogers and I are going to come up with an app. <laughs> Right. So you figure out which spouse will be better. <laughs> or, you, you know, you just take a look at your current spouse's benefit. Right. And then we will have an app that will say this spouse's Social Security benefit is this. Yeah. <laughs> so your spousal benefit would be X. And so uh, and so you just got to divorce your current spouse, yeah. marry this nice. Well, then there'd, um, be a, there'd be a check, you know, just to make sure it's like the 10th year in a day. And then it's then, then you got to get an alert. Yeah. Divorce. <laughs> yeah, divorce. Exactly. Divorce. Yes. It'll beat <laughs> four times. <laughs> And then the app will automatically go to an attorney's number, right? Right, fast divorce or something and, like that. And a uh, what a seeking millionaires a website because you got to you got to trade up. Yes, right. It's new yeah. phone fortune. Yeah, right. So, but the spousal benefit works like this: you can take your benefit um, or your spouse's half of your spouse's benefit. It actually doesn't work that way, but it's easier to explain that way. So, if you take a look at your spouse's benefit, let's say their benefit is three thousand dollars, and your benefit is a thousand, right? Well, what they do is they give you your thousand dollar benefit, but then they also increase it to fifteen hundred. They give you an extra five hundred dollars because that would be half of your spouse's benefit. Right. And we're talking monthly benefit, right? A thousand dollars a month. Yeah, 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 right. Right. And so you have to take a look to say, all right, well, let's say I'm single now and if I have an ex spouse, is that spousal benefit higher than my current benefit? Uh, then you can elect to take the spousal benefit. Now, there's some rules that have changed recently. So if you are 62 years of age, by last year of 2016, you can still file a restricted application. Uh, And what that means is that you can then claim your spouse's or ex-spouse's benefit and then let yours continue to accrue or grow. But that individual had to be taking benefits. So there's a lot to this stuff, but just say that we were not lying to you. Um, Yes, you can actually claim on an ex-spouse's benefit. Social security is likely to be an important part of your retirement. And as you just heard, it gets complicated. To learn how to maximize your social security benefits under the new rules, sign up for our free social security webinar on Tuesday, March 28th at 10.30 a.m. Pacific time. Go to yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Yeah, you see up there in the top where it says maximizing social security benefits under the new rules? Click that to register. Then log on to the free webinar on March 28th. Joe will teach you about claiming strategies, how to calculate your benefits, what benefits are available, and how they're taxed. If you've got social security questions, email info at purefinancial.com and Joe will do his best to answer them during the webinar. That's the free social security webinar on Tuesday, March 28th at 10.30 a.m. Pacific. Register at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Now, I think Joe and Big Al have a guest they'd like to talk to. Big Al, very special guest today. We do. We got uh, a great author, actually, that wrote a book that even you and I could understand. Barely. (laughs) I needed this book. I'm telling you. This is... (laughs) It, uh, the book is called Let's Chat About Economics. It's uh, basic principles, um, you know, through everyday scenarios, but it's, it's a children's book. You yeah, know, it's, it's first book on economics that you and I have ever understood. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> and it's a quick read. It is. And then you get to understand, you know, law of dimish- diminishing returns. Oh, you were paying attention. 
When I read, Al, I focus. <laughs> we have okay. uh, the author, uh, Michelle Balcone, on the telephone. And I just want to thank you very much, Michelle, for joining us and uh, taking a little bit of time to chat about economics. Well, thank you so much for having me. This is a real treat. You know, it's I'm looking at your book right now, and you got these little kids, you know, so you have these different chapters, and they have different stories. And what was the genesis behind you writing a children's book about economics? Sure. You know, the genesis was a real experience. So I think really powerful writing comes from a personal place. And uh, my husband and I have two children. And a few years ago, we were fortunate enough to see Dr. Arthur Laffer, the economist, speak uh, to, you know, a room full of people. And he's a very charismatic uh, communicator, you know, in addition just to being brilliant. So based on his speech, uh, my husband and I went home and had a fantastic conversation with our children, who were 10 and 12 at the time. And, you know, we had this really robust dinnertime conversation about economics based on, you know, very simple, easy to understand examples that Dr. Laffer gives. And our children came up with their own examples. And it was so powerful that I searched for a book that would keep the conversation going. And while there are a lot of, I would call them business-minded books that are really great for kids, there was nothing that used real economic terms uh, that could really continue the conversation with our children. So I reached out to Dr. Laffer. Uh, He's a grandfather and great-grandfather and uh, suggested that we write together, and he just jumped on board. Oh, that's awesome. I mean, some of, with how, how you bring complex, you know, the law of diminishing returns. It's like, oh my God, I'm going to fall asleep. Oh, I love <laughs> diminishing returns. I love it. Who wants to work harder than they can achieve benefit from? You know, that's shoveling the driveway, not in San Diego. But, you know, if you're in a snowy climate, why would you shovel the driveway past the side door? That's what our son told us, you know. There are reasons why you do that. But they got him thinking about how hard are you working and what benefit are you deriving that's diminishing return for kids right and then opportunity cost you know it's like hey well i want to go to a, a, a tropical vacation and then all right well figure it out you know let's that's let's right. let's kind of take a look how are we going to get there we have a budget uh, walk through some of these stories for us well i love these stories because they come from my family and i love my family conversation So the idea with the book is to replicate connecting with your kids because that was a very powerful experience that we have. So these stories revolve around, you know, things that families are doing anyway, going to the grocery store, planning a family road trip, you know, deciding on activities in the summertime. And then we've given readers charts, you know, graphs, really whimsical, fun graphs to illustrate the economic principles. So the example that you bring up, the road trip, how do you go on this this tropical vacation, you know, on a budget, we've created a, a chapter that teaches the law of diminishing returns and opportunity cost, which is the thing that you gave up when you make a choice, there was something that you didn't choose, and that's the opportunity cost of that decision. So we do it through a good old-fashioned family road trip, and the chart, you know, or graph in that chapter literally illustrates reaching the warmest temperature for the least expense. You know, it's like, bam, for kids, they get it. It, it. it meets them where they are. It uses examples that come from their life. And then it encourages 
parents or grandparents, whomever's reading the book to these kids, to really connect with kids with their own choices. You know, what time do you get up? What do you wear? Uh, are you going to have the, the brownie or the ice cream sundae? You know, there's an opportunity cost with that. Just meet kids where they are. Talk about their choices, but teach them the real economic terms and the process. And then they will be you know, like travel sports where you're you're playing baseball year-round, right, especially in Southern California, getting your 10,000 hours in, becoming proficient. Well, chatting with kids about economics on a daily basis with the decisions they're making anyway allows them to be economic experts. Uh, Michelle, I know you wrote this book for children, but are you finding adults are, are understanding terms that they never understood before? Yes, they are. Thank you for asking that, because the adults are the secondary audience. You know, so not only do the stories allow the adult, like I said, a parent, a lot of grandparents contact me. They're reading it with their grandkids. Um, They're saying they learned or now they are relearning economics and applying it to their everyday choices. You know, Alan had to read a book like this to figure out the Keynesian theory. <laughs> I did. It was all about fish. It was. It was. A, it was also a kids' book, and I finally got it. That's funny. I think. Well, you know, it's such a blessing to me. I get to work with Dr. Laffer on this really important topic, and we're actually working together on two additional books: one on democracy and one on immigration. You know, we connect on the idea that you know economics is not political. It really isn't. The application of economics is political. And he's a person that worked, you know, years ago with Jerry Brown on developing a flat tax plan. He is a person who voted once for Jimmy Carter, uh, for, you know, President Kennedy and President Clinton twice. He says this in, in every speech that he gives. Obviously, he was part of President Reagan's administration. You know, he supports good economic policy. You know, no matter who's using that on either side of the aisle. And that's what we want to teach our kids. This is not a political book. We do introduce taxes in Chapter 3, the summertime chapter, because we relate it to kids who are receiving allowance. And then how much are you going to save? You know, it's uh, spending versus saving which we introduce with milkshakes and piggy banks and a great graph for kids that instantly get it. But then mom and dad in the story talk about, well, hey, you know, if we're paying so much in taxes, where's your incentive? We teach incentive. Where's your incentive to work? You know, and the children in that story go through the same process. Should I do double the chores for double the allowance because now I have to save half my allowance? Or should I do no chores for no allowance? So I don't have to give up half of it and then do free stuff. Well, the chapter also teaches that nothing's free. So these are real these are real conversations. These are robust back and forth. That's why we titled the book Let's Chat. It's a conversation between adults and children. And it teaches them twenty-six real terms. The the supply and demand too is is I think <sighs> I, people hear that and they're like, "Yeah, I know what supply and demand is," but I really, they, truly don't think they, they don't get really, it. right? They don't get it. It's like, you know, and then so with with the story of, all right, well, let's have kind of a Thanksgiving type of um, feast, but not in November. And then going to the grocery exactly. store and saying, "Hey, well, why isn't there a lot yeah. of turkeys here?" There's and just then, a couple. <laughs> yeah, what's going on here? And 
you know, so like with, with, with our business, of course, we, um, you know, help people with their financial security. And some of that has to do with stocks and bonds and then ha- helping them understand, you know, pricing, you know, what is the price? Well, it's all based on the supply and the demand of that particular, you know, widget commodity or, or whatever that you want to place in, you know, in that placeholder. You're exactly right. And, you know, economics, true economics is the same economics in the the personal family budget as it is for the employer of those parents, as it is for the state that they live in and the country they live in. Economics is scalable. So I, as you can tell, I'm very passionate about bringing this lesson, you know, economic lessons to children. And the book was written for six six to 10-year-olds and their parents or grandparents. So establishing that at a really early age and then helping parents, either helping them or reminding them that economics is around us in our everyday life. It surrounds us. You know, even if you're making a decision like a child would, how am I spending my time after school? Am I, you know, hanging out playing Xbox? Am I in the driveway working on my left-handed layup? I'm trying to make the team. You know, those are economic decisions because time is a scarce resource. So, you know, I get really pumped up because I do work with kids in schools. I, I also actually work with adults and people who have acquired a lot of wealth in their life. And then they're, you know, doing planning to pass that on to their children and their grandchildren. They don't know how to have that conversation about economic decisions. Well, here's the platform for you. You know, in four easy-to-read stories, which take less than 10 minutes to read each, there's a total of 26 economic terms in there. And I think at the end of the day, it's... Well, do I want to go through the trouble to try to help my children understand this or even my spouse or partner or whoever, or do I just buy the thing? You know what I mean? It's like, right. hey, I, I want the Xbox. Okay, well, I could go through all of this um, where I don't necessarily have a platform or just buy it. Like Big Al is still buying his kids sneakers with the <laughs> Air Jordans. <laughs> <laughs> and they're so, 30. So you're part of the shoe game. The shoe game is big in our house. Let me tell you, those Nikes, you can buy and sell those things. Our uh, teenage son just sold a pair to profit. So I understand the shoe game. More importantly, he understands economics. Uh, Michelle, I uh, wish we could chat a lot more, but uh, we got to go. And I just want to thank you so much for what you're doing. I think this is awesome. Um, you know, it's, just, it's giving people a platform to have really good economic and you know positive conversations uh, i think that will put staples on kids lives for you know a, a very long time that's what i'm hoping and economics just isn't for the you know professor in the corduroy patch jacket i'll tell you that it's for everyone hey how do they find more information about this Sure. We have a website that gives more detail about the book, including all of the places that it's available for purchase, which, of course, includes Amazon and Barnes & Noble. But uh, if your uh, listeners would go to www.letschataboutecon.com, they'll find everything they need. That's Michelle Bacconi, everyone. Time now for Big Al's List. Every week, Big Al Clopine scours the media to find the best tips, do's and don'ts, mistakes, myths, and advice to improve your overall financial picture. In handy bullet point format. This week, five retirement myths debunked. 
When it comes to retirement, a lot of us only retire one time, right? And so you don't really know what you don't know until you do it. So let's talk to the experts, listen to the experts, let's listen to those that have retired and figure out what what are the myths, what are the things that really aren't true that we think are true. And the first one, Joe, that a lot of people believe is that stocks are not good investments for retirees. Hmm. That's what they think. That's that's yes, well, you know, that's what we're told. We're told when you retire you got to go safe. You got yep. safety because you can't afford to lose, lose money, money, right? And there's no way to make it back. You don't have enough time to make your principal back. Well, here's the problem with that type of thinking is that your retirement date is not your end date. Right. Yeah. I think that is a good way to think about it. And particularly, like, let's just say you retire at 65. And we know what the stats are right now. Uh, an individual that's a male is, uh, on average, lives to about 84, right? A female lives to about 88. That's the average. Average. Right? Yeah. Half less, half more. That's actually the median, if you want to be specific. That's the median age. Thank you. Yes. For you mathematicians out there. And, uh, and when it comes to a couple, when you put a husband and wife together, the median is around 90 years of age. In other words, at least one of them will live to age 90. So it's not the finish line. It's not the retirement, and then you have this rope, and then you run, you put your arms up, and then, hey, I'm finished. Yeah, maybe in the old days, you retired at 63, and you died at 64. 68 or something. It didn't matter. But now, retirement can be 25 years or longer. Right. Right. I I think a lot of our listeners, their retirement years are going to be longer than their working years. In many cases, right. And so, yes, you absolutely, in most cases, it all depends on your specific situation, how much money that you have, of course. Uh, But over the long term, um, stocks have outperformed bonds because they have more risk. And with that risk, you're compensated for it. So there's a higher expected return. Right. And so you probably need that higher expected return in your overall portfolio to make sure the portfolio will sustain itself over the next 30 years, right? Yeah, and that doesn't mean you should have all stocks. Of course not, right? right. You, d- you need to have a balanced portfolio, and, and the way we like to look at it is it takes a little bit of work to figure out what sort of rate of return do you need to make this all work, and then figure out what a, a portfolio should be to earn that rate of return. No more aggressive than you need to be. And so, in other words, maybe you'll have 30%, 40 50% stocks, maybe the rest in real safe type investments, so that when the stock market does correct, and we know that it does, it's just part of what it does, then you're not hurt as badly. And the other part of that is that you have enough safety that you can liquidate safe CDs, government T-bills, things like that, in times of market correction. So you don't have to touch your stocks. You don't want to sell them while they're down. In fact, that's actually when you want to buy a little bit more, because then you're going to get a higher expected return after that. Yeah, don't be afraid of stocks in retirement. Do not. They're going to help you long term, uh, without question. So that helps you accumulate the wealth. It's going to continue to sustain your portfolio long term. Another myth. Myth number two. There is no need to worry about health care because of Medicare. Oh, we just talked about that in our TV show. We sure did. We know that, what, 62% 62. of your health care is covered through Medicare, which means 38% needs to come from you. Right. 40%, roughly. Let's mm-hmm. round. So that's that's a big chunk. Right. right. And so you got to be careful here. And what what is the statistics? What, if you're a married couple, it's about $250,000. That will give you a 90% 
confidence level yeah. that you will have enough to cover those additional medical expenses. Yeah. So, and so, so we're talking co-pays. Right. We're talking everything. out-of-pocket sure, expenses sure. here, right? But we're not talking long-term care. That's over no. and above this. But yeah, that's what the stats will tell us. That's what Fidelity says anyway, and other uh, organizations that look at this, is a married couple age 65 are going to need around $250,000 for medical costs. And and just to be clear, and, and, and it's not that you have to have 250000 in the bank for medical, because you'll be funding some of that through your pensions, through your income, through your social security. But you, but that's how much that you're going to have to set aside. And I think a lot of people that, that think about retirement planning, they just assume that Medicare covers everything and it doesn't. Right. Not even close. Right. Uh, 62%. 62. Only. <laughs> <laughs> to, to, be to be exact. <laughs> Uh, number three, your tax bill will disappear in retirement. That's a myth. Yes, that is probably one of the largest myths for most of our listeners. Yeah, that's, you know? that's definitely not true because if you think about it, when you retire, think about where most of your savings, retirement savings is. Well, it's in your IRAs and your 401ks and your retirement plans. When you take money out of those retirement plans, it's fully taxable in general. And so you have to pay ordinary income taxes on that. Social Security, up to 85% of that is taxable. Your interest income, your dividends, taxable. Your rental income, taxable. Everything's taxable for the most part, unless you've done some tax planning and you move some money from your retirement accounts to a Roth IRA, then at least part of it is tax-free. But I think a lot of people um, assume that taxes aren't going to be that big a deal, or they'll be in a much lower bracket. And we find just the opposite for those that have done the right thing and saved money like they've been told. They end up in the same, or in some cases, higher tax brackets in retirement. It's most often the case when you've done the right thing, unfortunately, right? right? Because what have we been told is to save as much as we possibly can. And where most people save their money um, is in the retirement accounts because, you know, hey, that's what I was told. I get a tax deduction today, gross tax deferred, and I'll be in a lower tax bracket in retirement. Uh, But no, you you need to absolutely kind of take a look at, all right, well, how's your income going to be taxed? What's your goals? What's your other income sources? And come up with a strategy to mitigate that. We've talked about that a million times here. Uh, Here's another myth. Social Security will replace your work income. (laughs) That's what people think, actually? That's what, apparently. And and this article says that Social Security replaces about 40% of your pre-retirement income. That's not been my experience when I've looked at this. I I would say it's more like 25 to maybe 30% of your income is what it replaces. Uh, Again, it depends, of course. I mean, I would say... A majority of the population, that's probably accurate, um, because there's not a lot of money saved in these retirement accounts uh, by by most people. Well, you're probably right. So let me rephrase that. Our listeners, sure. it's probably it may be 10% of your of your pre-retirement income, right, uh, or your or your earning your your job earnings, or 20, 25%. But yeah, you can't necessarily count on it being a lot. And the whole idea of Social Security is mainly just to make sure you're not living in poverty that. You can, you can have a place to live, you can turn the lights on, you can have a little food, but it's not exactly a robust lifestyle if that's all you got. There's all sorts of different strategies that you might want to take a look at, too, when you claim your Social Security benefit. So you want to maximize that. The longer that you wait, right, the more money that you do receive. So if you are looking at Social Security as one of the main sources of income, uh, 
you probably want to push that thing out as much as you can and work as long as you can uh, to, to maximize that benefit. Yeah. The last one, Joe, is this is a myth that annuities are never a good choice for retirees. And interestingly enough, I would say that many people have negative connotations about annuities, including us, because they don't really end up performing the way that they're promised, and they tend to be pretty expensive in terms of internal fees. The people selling them often, not always, but often get pretty high commissions. But there are certain kinds of annuities, like lower cost, immediate annuities, or maybe qualified longevity annuity contracts. That could, QLAC? Yeah, QLAC, that could be worth a look. The immediate annuity, Joe, you put money in, right, and then right away you, you get a, a payment stream. If you need a free financial assessment, if you missed an episode of the podcast, or if you're just dying to see what Joe and Big Al look like, visit YourMoneyYourWealth.com. Access the Learning Center with resources, white papers, and webinars on investing and financial planning. Subscribe to the podcast and see clips of the Your Money, Your Wealth TV show, all at YourMoneyYourWealth.com. Okay, folks, let's test the big brain on Big Al. Okay, what do you got? I got eight things most Americans don't know about retirement. Okay. Are you ready? Are you going to see if I actually know them? or I'm going to quiz you. Yes, okay. I have questions. Okay. You answer the questions, and I will tell you if you're right or wrong. All right. Okay. Question number one. Roughly, how much do investment professionals say people should save by the time they retire? How much they should save as relationship to their salary, I yes. suppose. Okay, I'm going to say eight to ten times. Correct response. At least ten times the amount of one's last year's salary. Yes. Good job, Alan. Okay, good. Uh, Fidelity said that even though professionals disagree somewhat about how much the average person needs to save, because you might say, hey, save 15% of your salary. Right. But that's not going to do anyone any good if they're 64 years old and don't have anything saved. <laughs> yes, exactly. You know what I mean? Right. Or you know, if you say, hey, save 15% of your salary, and then... You're like, well, I was saving 25%, so should I bring it down to 15 I could spend more, you're telling me? So, right? You, no, save 25%. Well, you are right. I think that 15% is good if you're in your 30s or maybe early 40s, but if you're in your 50s, you got to get a little more sophisticated. So um, check this out, though. 19% of pre-retirees age 55 to 65, guess how they answered that question? Oh, as to how much they had to save? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Five times? Two to three. Two to three? <laughs> really? Yep. Wow. Okay. So. Okay. All right. Ten times, folks. That's the goal. Get to ten times. If you're making a hundred grand, that's a million bucks. But every year you get a bonus, you go, darn, I can't retire again this year. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. Question okay. number two. All right. How often <clears throat> over the past 35 years do you think the market has had a positive annual return? I would say 70%. The market has enjoyed a positive annual return 30 out of the past 35 years. Historically, the U.S. stock market has gained about 7% per year. 30 out of 35. I don't have the calculator, but that's probably a little over, about 75%. That's pretty close to Something what like your that. answer is. Yeah. So, again, gold star for Check. Miguel. Check two. Only 8% of overall respondents answered correctly. Oh, really? Okay. Those between 55 and 65 did slightly better with 14% responding correctly. Really? Okay. So I think when you ask that question, and all of our listeners heard the question, yes. I'm guessing, what do you think? They'll probably say 50-50. 
Yeah, uh, probably, yes. Um, it depends, though. You know what? Right now, today, because what? Markets are, they were at 21,000. Now it's a little bit under that, but it's still, right? All time highs, all time highs. That's all we hear. That's all we right. hear. So, they'll, you know, that recency bias is so real. It's like, well, man, the market's been up since 09 and this and that. Yeah. I would say it's even higher. Yeah, than, 90%. Yeah. Right. And then if you ask that same question in 2008, yeah. What do you think the respondents would say? Yeah, less than fifty. Yeah, and <laughs> markets I, never up. I was just, uh, you know, the uh, we just had the what the eighth year anniversary of the of the bull run, right? Because March 9th, two thousand nine. Did we? Have a party? Did we, have a... we we it was this last week. We missed it. I actually. <laughs> did you have a cocktail? I talked to Ann about it. <laughs> yeah, did you? And and it's funny because a lot of people don't realize the Dow at that point was what about sixty five hundred points, something like that. 6,800 points, uh, and now it's over 21,000. I think a lot of people don't realize we've had an incredible run since 2009. Yeah. You just want to make sure that you're always defensive. Right. right. It's all right. Well, here, don't just start loading up on stocks now. You just got to take care of what you're, what, what you're trying to accomplish. All right, let's go. Question number three. If you were able to set aside $50 each month for retirement, okay, how much could that end up being 25 years from now, including interest, if it grew at a historical stock market average? Well, you don't have your calculator, do you? I'm going to do this without a calculator. 50 bucks a month for, so that's uh, $600 a year for 25 years. Um, I'm going to say uh, 100000 That's a little bit less than that, Al. Okay. About 40. 40. Okay. <laughs> Give or take. 16% of respondents answered correctly. Big Al, however, did not. <laughs> <laughs> however, 47% underestimated how big an effective real, um, relatively small savings can be over time. Got it. All right. So two correct, one fail. Yep. Let's see if you can get a passing grade. Okay. Given your current average life expectancy, if you want to retire at the age 65... About how long would you need your retirement savings to last? Okay, well, it depends whether you're male, female, or a couple. So I'll answer all three. If you're male, 19 years. If you're female, about 23 years. If you're a couple, 25 years. Yeah, very good, Al. It's approximately 22 years, given that the average life expectancy is 87 or 85 for men and 87 for women. There you go. So right on target. Let's see. A third of respondents got that answer right. 38% estimated that they would need to make their savings last for about 12 years. 12. Well, if that's your financial plan, <laughs> you're blowing yourself up. Well, and of course, the flaw with that question is is if that's half the people live to that age, the other half live longer. So you really got to plan longer than so that. So what's the, the median? Median. Thank yes. you. Yes. All right. The big brain. I've <laughs> only been stumped once in the last century. Yeah, stump Big Al. Remember that segment? Yeah, that right. was a great one. You got stumped today. Anytime you ask me a question about a movie, I always was stumped because I don't know anything. I watch, I've watch. i seen the movies. I just can't remember anything. Well, did you watch that uplifting movie that I told you to watch? Uh, Manchester one? by the Sea? Oh, that one? No, I'm not going to watch that laughs. one. laughs. I watched La La Land. I like that kind of <laughs> It's got to be happy. Approximately... How much did the average monthly Social Security benefit pay in 2016? 
2016. It was, uh, I'm going to say, around 1000 to 1100 bucks. 1300 1300 I'll give it to you. Close. It's pretty good. 43% of respondents answered correctly. Better yet, half of pre-retirees did so. Fidelity pointed out, however, uh, that... With upward of 75 ways to claim and dozens of factors that influence one's decisions when they retire, 1,300 is just simply the average. So I'll get it to you, Al. Okay, close right. enough. So cruising here. We got just a couple more. About what percentage of your savings do many financial experts suggest you withdraw annually in retirement? Well, the, the standard answer is 4%. However, I will add, if you retire younger... I like say 55 or 60, you might want to keep it closer to 3%. If you retire later, like 70, 75, you could probably get away with a 5% distribution rate. 42% of pre-retirees answered correctly. Um, and Big Al, of course, you were right on the money there. But check this out, Al. Uh, 38% of those 55 and older said they could withdraw 7% or more from their savings annually. Right, and I'm sure some said 10% because that's been the historical average of the stock market. And 15% of this age group felt that they could withdraw 10 to 12% annually. Thanks for blowing that <laughs> bubble of mine. I always told your thunder. So you did? Yeah. Damn it. But right, okay, so here we go. We got all, a lot of these people, 55 and 65, they're going to withdraw 12%. Uh, well, yeah, if you draw 12% out of your money, you're done in 12 years. Right. Yeah, good yeah. job. Yeah, right. Okay. All right. What do we got here? What do you think is the single biggest expense for most people in retirement, Big Al? Hmm, let me think here. I'm going to say medical. Huh, okay. Housing, healthcare, and transportation are typically the largest expense in retirement, but housing by far tops the list for most Americans. Housing, okay. Housing. For many retirees, housing well, see, can that... make up nearly half their expenses. All right. Well, that to me was the obvious answer, but... In a lot of cases, retirees have paid off their mortgages, and so then it's cheaper. 17% of these respondents and 13% of those between 55 and 65 answered correctly. But 69% thought health care would be the largest expense. I was in good company. Big Al! <laughs> Fail! You know what I just read, Joe, was um, the most hated tax... I mean, a survey of a bunch of uh, of individuals, the most hated tax, you would think it would be income taxes, but it's not. It's property taxes. And it's property taxes because you have no control over it. It just keeps going up, and you can't come up with deductions. You can't reduce your income. There's nothing you could do. It's just just pay it. And that's part of the problem with housing is even if, if, if the home's paid off, you got property taxes. What is your biggest... What are, my biggest expense? Uh, no, not your. I don't. You got a big wallet. I don't care about your ex- biggest Vacations. expense. <laughs> yes, it's my African trips, Joe. Uh, what is your? What tax do you hate the most? Uh, me, income tax. Yeah, right? I mean that's, that's property that's, tax. That's, that's just a big part, one. That's now, of course, but we live well, in California. One for big. It's, it's we live in California though. Prop thirteen. Mm-hmm. So our our property taxes are so, somewhat under control relative to other states. So I'll put it that way. All right. Here's the final question, bud. Okay. About how much will a couple retiring at age sixty five spend on out of pocket costs for health care to cover the course of their retirement? Two hundred fifty thousand. 
Okay. Only 15%. It's 260 now. <laughs> okay. I missed it. So only 15% answered correctly, with 72% underestimating the true amount of health care costs. Overall, 22%, including 19% of pre-retirees, us underestimated how much they would need to spend by about 200 grand. Wow. Okay. So I got, what, five out of seven? That's passing. That's over 70%. I'll give you six. Six? All I'll right. Even six. better. I'll give you six. I got a B plus then. No, actually, I'm not going to give you six. I'm going to give you five. C minus. C minus. <laughs> CPA for over 30 years. You can't get eight <laughs> questions right. Folks, don't ever call Pure Financial Advisors. <laughs> we don't know what we're doing. <laughs> oh, boy. Joe, I've got some uh, tax news you can use. All right, uh, tax which, news. Um, audits, the dreaded audit, the dreaded IRS audit, uh, the, are, the numbers of audits are continuing to decline rapidly. Uh, in fact, I guess if you look at uh, 2015, um, or this is 2016, excuse me, the, la- the individual audit rate fell to 0.7%, so that's only one out of every 143 tax returns actually get audited. And as, as recent as 2011, it was over 1%. And most of the audits th- these days are through the mail. You just get a letter in the mail saying, hey, you know what? You claimed seventy-five thousand for salary, and we got eighty thousand. So we think you owe us tax on that extra five thousand of income. If you agree, pay it. If you don't, tell us why not. That's how most audits are being conducted these days, and it's all a factor, Joe, of the the cutbacks in the budget for the IRS. And each year, they they seem to have less and less resources. But that's good news for everyone else out there because there's less chance of being audited these days. Why is that good news, Al? It's good news for our listeners. No one wants to be audited, Joe. Well, I think our listeners are honest, upstanding citizens. (laughs) Yes, they are. That if they did get audited, there's nothing to worry about. But I, I, I can't tell you how many very good people, good and honest people, they just have such fear over an audit, and they want to avoid an audit at all costs. And being a CPA, I've been to several audits. They're not, they're not near as bad as you might think. They're not fun. I'm not going to say they're fun, but they're not as bad as you might think. But like the movies might over. Yeah, yeah, a little bit too dramatic. Now, when it comes to corporations, it's interesting. The uh, the overall business examination rate was 0.49 percent, so that's even lower. Uh, and uh, partnerships and S corporations were under that rate, 0.38, 0.34. What, so what's the lesson there? If you if you want less audit exposure, you incorporate or you set up an LLC as opposed to being a sole proprietor. Question: Let's say I have an S corporation. Yeah. Would there ever be advice for me to switch to a C corp? Uh, yes, uh, although there's not a lot of great reasons to. Uh, an S corp is a flow-through entity, so whatever the profits are, you pay for individually. With a C corp, the corporation pays its own profits, uh, and there is no flow-through. The downside of the C corp, of course, is that you can be double taxed on that income because corporations have profits; they pay taxes on it. And if you want to get those profits, you declare a dividend, you pay taxes again. But there are some advantages of a C corporation. For example, you could set up a medical reimbursement plan. You have to cover all your employees, but your employees can submit their medical bills and, and get a reimbursement. And the company can deduct it. So 
in, es- in essence, you get to deduct your medical expenses. Now, most C-Corps don't have that policy unless it's owned by one person and there's no employees. You see that a lot of times with professional doctor corporations. That way they get to deduct their medical. Uh, in other cases, when you are a technology company and you need venture capital money, they'll almost always insist that you switch to C-Corporation because they don't want to pay taxes on the profits. So Yeah, I wouldn't ever see the reason to go only because of the healthcare. Right. Yeah, it's it, there's not a lot of reasons to do it, um, and and as for that reason, when you incorporate, you would almost always go S corporation. It's time to dip into the email bag with financial questions, courtesy of Advisor Insights from Investopedia, and you, the Your Money, Your Wealth listeners. Today, the fellas answer questions on contributing to a Roth IRA, 401k, or both, investing excess cash for the future, retirement contributions while receiving a disability pension, and buying individual stocks. Don't forget, Joe and Big Al are always willing to answer your money questions. Email info at purefinancial.com, or you can send your questions directly to joe.anderson at purefinancial.com, or Alan.clopine at purefinancial.com. Okay, are you ready, buddy? Yeah, what do you got? Since you failed the quiz, we're going to go I got, a, into... I got C. All right. I got five out of seven. All right, where should I move my market earnings to avoid any losses on the funds is the title of this. Okay. All right. I have earned $1.4 million in stocks. Okay. I want to transfer this money out of the market and into a traditional IRA. I don't need to make more money. I just want to keep what I currently have and not risk it to losses. Is this a suitable strategy? Signed, worried. Worried what? about the all-time high market. $1.4 million in stocks. That's pretty good. She wants to transfer it to an IRA. Or is it he or she? Worry Wart is the name. <laughs> Walt. Let's call him Walt. Walt. Walt's worried about... I wonder what that means, transfer to an IRA. Does that mean it's in a 401k? Yeah, I'm guessing, yes. Yeah, so he wants to transfer that to an IRA. And, and when you have money in a 401k and when you leave your employer, that's an option that you have, which is which is it's called rolling it to a, a, an IRA, which you can do, and it's uh, tax-free. So that's... And generally, I'd say most more often than not, people do that because there's more investment choices. But let's just say... We, we, we said his name's Walt. Let's say Walt did pretty well in the stock market during his working years, but now he's retiring and he wants to make sure it's safe, right? And, and of course, that's what a lot of people do when they come to retirement. I can't afford to lose it. We talked it. about this. Um, is that, all right, well, your retirement date is not necessarily your, the finish line, right? Yeah, right. And so... We, He's like, all right, well, I got $1.4 million. It's all in stocks. I'm feeling pretty good. I don't want to take any more risk. Let me put it in cash. Right. I'm going to move it to an IRA. And then what do I, What do you suggest where I don't lose any money? Right. And so that, to, to, to just simply answer the question, you could put it in a CD. Treasury bills. Right? Treasury bill, probably shorter term rather than longer term because there's more chance of losing principal. Yeah, treasury it, bill, yeah. not a bond. Yeah, right. Treasury, right. <laughs> okay. Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Joe Anderson. Uh, but really, is that the is that the right thing to do? And the answer is no, because if you're retiring and you're age 65, I mean, the the you're probably going to need your money for at least 20 years, maybe 25 years or longer. So you're going to have to have some growth. Yeah. So I'm all for having plenty of safety in your portfolio, but not 100 percent. It's not all in versus all out. It's finding that right right allocation for you in retirement. Okay, um, here's one for you, buddy. Okay. 
I currently own a Roth IRA with my bank, which I invest in regular. My employer offers a 401k, but no match contribution. Okay. Should I still participate in the 401k for the benefit of the tax deduction, or should I continue with my Roth IRA? Ah, that's a good question. I think um, when I, when we go through the Joe Anderson order of uh, saving... Thank you for the yes, acknowledgement there. Yes, that, that's where I get it from. TM. <laughs> Trademarked. <laughs> um, we usually say, start with your employer's 401k up to the match. But if there's no match, there's not a particular advantage. So actually, go ahead and go right to your Roth IRA and fund that. That's $5,500, unless you're 50 and older. Then it's $6,500. And then maybe you go back back to the 401k and uh, and start loading that up. I totally agree with you, bud, but I think there's also there's no match here, so then we have to dive in a little bit deeper. He's already have uh, the I guess the discipline to open up a Roth IRA at the bank and contribute to it regularly, mm-hmm. right? And so congratulations there because the 401k is a lot easier, right? It's already out of your paycheck, out it of is. sight, out of mind. Um, so I like what he's currently doing. So I wouldn't want him to stop doing that. Right. Um, but yeah, I think a little bit of both is probably the right answer. Yeah, and I think I know where you're going because when it's 401k, it comes out of your pay. It's pay yourself first. It's automatic. You don't even think about it. And you tend to save more that way. Right. right. Absolutely. Because something might happen next month where he's putting right. money in and, and guess I'm not, what? I'm not going to do Roth this month because the car whatever. broke down or whatever. Oh, and then next month. Well, I'm not going to do Roth this or maybe next maybe Maybe he funds it annually. Well, I can't do it this year just because of this, or I got the. If it yeah. comes out of your paycheck, you kind of start to adapt and spending what You're comes right in. You're right about that. So um, I think the the correct answer is to find out exactly how much money that you should save to accomplish all your financial goals. Save that money and spend everything else. All right. How should I look to invest excess cash later in life without an immediate need for the short term gains? All right, so this individual is 77 years old and has about $60,000 in cash to invest. He also has three 401k accounts worth 250000 I don't need the immediate cash. How do you propose I invest this excess cash? In an index fund? Um, is that a smart and safe play? Ooh, 77 using play. <laughs> She's hip. He is. Look at that. Huh? What did you say? 66,000 cash? 60 grand. 60 grand, 250,000 in the 401k. Of course, we need to know a lot more information to answer that question, but I'll take it maybe a couple ways. Uh, if you need or you think you're going to need the $60,000 within, what would you say, four or five years, then keep it super safe. You know, go with a go with a CD or government T bill, something like that. But if you really don't think you're going to need it for a while, you could then go to the market. You could go to an index fund. There's all kinds of index funds. You could you could go to a total stock market index fund or or any number of things. But um, I think the real answer is it. It really, we need to know a lot more information about your situation before we tell you how to invest this sixty thousand. I know. That is the most common question. We get that all the time. Because people like to compartmentalize their, their assets, right? Wow. Yeah, you like that? I've been big, listening to Joe Anderson. That's a big word. <laughs> big word for Big Al. But it's like, oh, God. You know, and then all other, you know, I, I, I'm like addicted to like other financial podcasts. Yeah, and so and you listen show. to them all the time. Yeah. Oh, it's like nauseating <laughs> of the advice that 
You hear. Yeah, like, well, tell me, like, what would be a common response uh, with that question? On what oh, do you, you have $60,000? Oh, go to TD Ameritrade and buy uh, Vanguard's, you know, what? It's just like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> you know, all right, well, you're 77. What's a good place to park the money? You, you, there's no way that you can give that advice appropriately. No. You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't know. Buy Snap. Right. There you go. <laughs> Snapchat. That's, yeah, that's it, my advice. It might go up. It could. Yeah. IPL was just last week. Right. Imagine that. You ever played with Snapchat there, Big Al? Uh, no, my kids use it all the time, though. I've never even heard of it. <laughs> what the hell's wrong with me? And I'm not old. Maybe <laughs> you, I am. You need to have kids that keep you young. What? Snap is like is that the one when you get something with like bunny ears on it or something? No, like it's the... it's a it's it's sort of like it's sort of like a way to communicate with each other or a group, but then everything disappears. Was it a video? It could be anything, I think, but it, then it disappears quickly. So it's it's not a permanent record of your life. So d- does Anthony Weiner use it? <laughs> I suspect <laughs> <laughs> that would be a perfect application for someone that likes to do that yeah, sort of thing. Yeah, he should have used a little Snapchat. Yeah, instead of texting. <laughs> <laughs> okay, can I still contribute to a Roth IRA if I have a disability pension? This is an interesting question here. Okay, I married. 56 years old, my wife works, and I'm um, on disability at home all the time. <laughs> okay. Okay. Can I still contribute to my Roth IRA that I've set up before uh, I went on disability? What's your answer there, Big Al? Uh, when it's disability income, if, if that was the only income, no. Did it say a spouse worked? Well... Let's say if his spouse doesn't work, but okay. yes, I think so. So you could, but on it depends on that disability policy. Because I have a client that was on disability, right? Yep. And so it depends on if it's taxable or tax free to you. And there's this little box on the disability W two form, right? Or right? Or ten ninety nine? Or was it? Would it be W two? Wouldn't it? Probably be W two if it, right? if it's taxable. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yes, but it was, uh, they were able to contribute to a Roth, even on disability insurance. Not all disability policies, um, but just, so just F- FYI. FYI, I don't know. I mean, if it's if it's Social Security disability, then the answer is no. And honestly, in, in most cases, I would say you cannot. But um, yeah, there are exceptions. Uh, but in this particular case, either way, if your spouse works, you can use your spouse's earned income for you to qualify to contribute to a Roth IRA. And if your spouse is in a retirement plan, the there are limits in, in terms of, of you putting money into the into the Roth IRA. Actually, either way, whether in in a retirement plan or not, and that's what around one hundred eighty-six thousand dollars. If you make less than that, to one hundred ninety-six thousand dollars. Once you're over one ninety-six, you can't do a Roth contribution if it's joint. Below 186, you can. Get social with Your Money, Your Wealth and Pure Financial Advisors. Follow us on Twitter at YMYW Show. To connect with us on Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Google Plus, just search for Pure Financial Advisors. Got uh, one more email question for you, Al. Oh, good. Okay. All right. I'm trying to determine if I should sell this company stock or not. If the company's revenue stays the same, when analyzing their statement, in the past three years have been profiting by 10%, but the fourth year is the exact same. 
if not a few cents more than the previous years. Would you sell that stock because of that reason, or would you hold on to see what happens? I know there's a lot more to look at than revenue, but what is the deciding factor to whether to buy or sell? An individual stock? Well, I guess, um, full disclosure, I, I don't, especially when it comes to your retirement nest egg, I don't really like to invest in individual stocks. I think you're taking more risk than you need to take. However, um, trying to answer this particular question, there's a lot of factors that go into stock pricing. But here's the problem with them. Sorry to interrupt you. Okay. Not not your answer, because yeah. you didn't answer. I interrupted you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Was... Is that I was just about. I had such a brilliant. No, it's already priced in the stock. Yeah, is the problem that's right? The problem. Well, if you sell it, the market already they've already seen those numbers as well. Because I think his question is, hey, should I hold on here because just see what? Well, is the market going to catch on to this? So, so the, the it's probably priced for being flat revenue because that's what's been happening and maybe just a slight increase in in profits i guess is as it says but that's already priced in now what could change that next year all of a sudden you sell a new product you got a lot more revenue and a lot more profit the stock price shoots up but you don't know that information because it hasn't happened yet (laughs) or on the other hand you know, revenue stays the same, and now expenses go up, and it starts losing money. The stock starts going down. But again, it's not known until it happens. So that that's a probably a good way to answer it, is the current stock price is reflective of everything known right now. The same thing you're seeing. So it's very difficult to make those sorts of calls based upon that. Right. So, I mean, so you're looking at all the factors that everyone else is looking at. You need to know information that no one else has to make the best decision. Yeah, and that's not always legal. Oh, True. <laughs> As a matter of fact, that is always illegal. It's called insider trading. Yeah, but I mean, they're trying to get a leg up here. This right. is what most, I think, individual but, investors try to do is they're looking. All right. So I, I, I applaud that person for doing a little bit more research than most, kind of taking a look at what's going on under the hood. Hey, how are the revenues looking over the last couple of years? Hey, they're profitable. All right. So should I continue to hold on to this thing or not? Well, yeah. Well, and and so if we, if we go back towards the beginning of my career, which was in the 1980s, I think it was, you, you probably had a little bit more likelihood of maybe getting a leg up because there wasn't the same amount of information, public information. I mean, there was information, but it was hard to get at. Right now, everything's on the internet, so it really is hard to get an advantage, but the books like Peter Lynch, Beating the Street, they, he talked about going to a mall and seeing what stores really has a lot of people, right? It's hard to do that now because everything is public on the internet. Yeah, but that's all fodder, too. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, you could it, go back to like, ancient times, and still the the markets are fairly efficient. I mean, they are perfect. They but, are. Uh, and, and I'm not saying it's impossible to get a leg up and really do all this research. I mean, all those boys did in 2008 when they kind of found some disparity going on with these... Um, you know mortgages and you right. know, how they package them up That's with true, those, yeah. you know CDOs and right. you know, any of this doesn't necessarily and they made billions shorting that stuff. So yeah, it's absolutely possible. But the probability of sitting there taking a look at a a balance sheet of a company that you own a stock in and then making your decisions based on that it's very very difficult. But it's interesting that I think that's how most people think you're supposed to invest. Sure. 
Sure. Right? Because when you turn on any kind of financial channel, all they're talking about, well, this company's doing this, and maybe it's a good buy now. And, and that's what that's what people, that's their frame of reference. Right. Oh, I mean, this sounds pretty intelligent, too. Maybe you should buy, um, you know, steel companies because the current administration wants to build. Yeah, or build mining, walls, mining companies. Right. Right. And so it's like, okay, well, yeah, I think, well, Trump wants to build some walls, so he needs some steel to do that, so maybe I buy some steel, right? Because those, you know, steel companies are going to be selling a lot of steel. Yeah, but everyone else kind of looks at that as well. Right. Right? That's why those particular companies are up. Look at financials. Financials are up huge just because of, all right, well, here, the the fiduciary rule, the DOL. We're going to take away the regulations. Yeah, maybe, you know, slow down some of the regulations and things like that. Uh, It's like, all right, well. And then, you know, then the jobs report. You know, Yellen's going to increase interest rates. Well, I mean, it was—it's already priced into interest rates. So she, she told this, us that in December, she's right, going to raise it three times. Exactly. <laughs> so that's why it's—it's it's, it's a little bit more challenging. You listen to some very intelligent people, and Al and I are not one of those people. <laughs> we listen to. Them. We listen to. And we, other... try, we try to regurgitate, and we do it poorly. Poorly, very, very much so. <laughs> so, but I think that's why you, you just have to have a good, solid, strong, you know investment strategy based on your specific needs, right? Yeah, okay. I, and I, just keep it simple. Right. I mean, we could get technical. There's certain areas of the market that you probably want to take more advantage of, but not trying to pick individual stocks. You want to buy a big basket of them, you know, such as like value companies, lower price companies, right? Yeah. We, we do smaller know, like, companies? Yeah, like you said, there's certain trends that smaller companies outperform larger companies over the long term. Not in every year. Lots of years they don't. But over the long term, same with value over growth. Right. Small companies did very well last year. Well, <clears throat> they're doing very well this year. Yeah, but the year before, they did poorly. They're awful. Yeah. Right. And the year before that, terrible. Right. So it, it's not every year. So that's why you want a little bit in all, just to kind of keep it really simple. That's it for us today. For Big Al Clopine, I'm Joe Anderson. The show is called Your Money, Your Wealth. So to recap today's show, contrary to the myths, stocks and annuities may indeed be good investments for retirees, but it depends on your specific situation. Generally, you should have eight to 10 times your last year's salary saved as you enter retirement and only withdraw about 4% per year in retirement. But most Americans don't know these things. And Joe's moving to the Republic of Congo to manage the fortune of an email scammer. Our thanks to Michelle Balcone, co-author of Let's Chat About Economics, for talking to us about our natural economic experts, our kids. Subscribe to the podcast at yourmoneyyourwealth.com through your favorite podcatcher or on iTunes, where you can also check out our ratings and reviews. And remember, this show is about you. If there's something you'd like to hear on Your Money, Your Wealth, just email info at purefinancial.com. Listen next week for more Your Money, Your Wealth, presented by Pure Financial Advisors. For your free financial assessment, visit purefinancial.com. Pure Financial Advisors is a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full and informed investment decision. Your Money, Your Wealth opening song Motown Gold by Carl James Pestka is licensed under a Creative Commons license.